If you like this podcast, you're going to really like McClanahan Academy. Head over to McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll. It's free of charge. You get a free class, 10 Myths of American History. When you do enroll, I've got nearly 20 classes there available for purchase. Go to McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll today and get a real history education. The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 528. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to be back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. Find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, McClanahan.com. While you're there, give me that email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, free audiobook of the same title read by yours truly. Support the show by going to McClanahanAcademy.com. Always free to enroll. Get that free class, 10 Myths of American History. When you do enroll, get great deals on new and forthcoming courses. You get that through the email that you get from me, right? So that's how you get the coupons. So watch out for those. Make sure you whitelist my email address when it comes through. You can also click on that support tab at BrianMcClanahan.com. You can throw a few pennies my way. You can get a book plate if you want my autograph on one of my books. I've got a lot of those. The Jeffersonian Tradition and Southern Scribblings are the most recent. You can get those wherever books are sold online. Also, uh, you can click on that shop tab at brianmcclanahan.com. Get my logo and all kinds of cool stuff. Cool, cool stuff. Excuse me. Go to Learn True, T-R-U-E, LearnTrueHistory.com. That's my affiliate link for Tom Woods Liberty Classroom. Lots of great ways to support the show financially. All those things, when you buy classes at McClanahan Academy, when you purchase a book, when you get some gear, when you get click through, learn uh, true history, and, and subscribe to Liberty Classroom that way. It's a great website. Uh, when you do all that, send me a few bucks, get a book plate, whatever. That all helps support the show, keep it free of charge. But again, great way to support the show is to let people know you like it. Share it around on social media. Rate it where you get your podcast. Let people know you're thinking locally and acting locally. Think locally and act locally. I don't care if you use that slogan or not. I don't copyright it. It's not mine. Use it, right? Go out and run for office. Get on that school board. Make your voice heard. Get on the city council. Do those things to help improve, even if it's just your homeowners association, right? Your HOA. Get out there and get on that thing and try to help improve your little neighborhood. You see, what people don't realize about that, this is an aside, and I'll get to the material in a second. What people don't realize about that is that uh, a... a neighborhood today, a subdivision, would have been as large as as large as a large town in the Middle Ages. That's scale, right? We I don't often talk about that. That's scale. A large town might have had a couple thousand people in it in the Middle Ages. Well, think about your subdivision. You got a hundred house subdivision there. Right? You could you could run into a medium sized town anyways. Five hundred people Maybe there's 200 houses in your subdivision. Now you're talking about 1,000 people. That's a pretty good size area. If you have 20 houses, you might have 100 people in there, maybe a little less, 80 people in 20 houses, something like that. But that's still a decent size small town in the Middle Ages. Okay, So we don't think about scale, but get involved in those things. You can make a difference in your life just by having your own space be beautiful and accepting of what you like. And, of course, you can keep the Karens off the HOA. You can do all that kind of stuff, too. So 
Uh, that's all important, right? I mean, these are these are great things to do to try to improve your well-being, your mental well-being, your life, can, things you can control. We all feel powerless to stop the general government. In many ways, we are. We can try to elect people, but they're going to keep doing their stupid things. doesn't matter who's in power, Republican, Democrat. They're going to do their dumb stuff. And so how do we change our lives from the bottom up? How do we do it? Well, you gotta you got to affect the things you can control. And the things you can control are the things in your house, in your neighborhood, in your town, your city, your county. Those are the things you can control. And if we all just did that, Americans would be a lot happier. If we just did those things, Americans would be a lot happier. And of course, it takes people that have are dedicated to good things, not just ridiculous things. But anyways, I digress. So let's talk about the the subject of the day, and this is a listener-generated episode. We're going to talk about Robert E. Lee today. And that's because Alan Gelzo, the self-described Yankee who thinks Robert E. Lee committed treason, wrote a new book about Lee. And this book, I haven't read it yet, but I'm going to talk about a review that was published in the, I think it was the Wall Street Journal, by Fergus Borderwich, who wrote a terrible book on the First Congress. I reviewed that a few years back. Uh, it, I mean, that's a great topic. Right? The first Congress is a really interesting topic, but Borderwich is a Yankee who doesn't really know what he's talking about with American history most of the time, and it was a disaster of a book. And so Borderwich then reviews uh, Alan Gelzo. Now, Gelzo is a described conservative, and on many issues, I'm sure he is, right? But he's also a northerner who hates the South. Now, these people say, I don't hate the South. I don't hate the South at all. I love the South. I'm trying to save the South from itself. I'm trying to save the South from being awful. I mean, you got to get rid of these monuments because these things are terrible. We got to save you from you. We got to save, we got we to Yankify the South. That's what they're trying to do, right? They are the quintessential Yankees. And, and that is what Alan Gelzo really is in real life. Now, I've pointed, I've talked about this before, but. Years ago, he was invited to a debate at the University of Virginia with Don Livingston. They were going to debate secession, nullification, federalism. And Gelzo makes this speech where he says, you know, secession is treason, uh, nullification is illegal, uh, the, none of these things can happen. And, of course, uh, Don Livingston took the other side. And at the end of the debate, they pulled the audience who won, and Livingston crushed him. And Gelzo actually called a student at this debate. There's audio of this. Now, I don't know about the Q&A, but I, I, I know people who were who attended it, and, of course, Livingston himself. Gelzo called a student a traitor. You're a traitor. And uh, boo, people booed him down. And then afterwards, he sulks because, oh, the thing was rigged against me. It's rigged against me. Maybe it's because you didn't make your case. Maybe it's because people don't believe your nonsense. In fact, after he made his whole point, one of my favorite parts of that debate is Don Livingston stands up and says, well... If the U.S. Constitution is as you described it, then all of what you say is true, but it's not. <laughs> it was great. There's one rejoinder, but it's not. If what you said is true, I mean, if, if we had a unitary system like France, everything that you said would be true, but we don't have that, so it's not, and the evidence is all on our side. So calling Robert E. Lee a traitor. Now, he does this in a very nuanced way. I've seen him do it before in some speeches. I've watched Gelzo a lot. I've seen him do it before. What he does is he tries to part, he tries to split hairs here and parse. Well, 
Lee resigned his commission, and but the commission didn't get delivered until he had already joined the Confederacy. But when he resigned his commission, it hadn't been delivered and accepted of resigning his commission till this date. And he was concerned in a letter, well, did they get my did they get my resignation? Because I've already signed up with the Confederacy, so am I committing treason now? I mean, this is where he gets in this nuanced thing of well, I mean, Lee might have joined the Confederacy before he was out of the US military, so then therefore he's he's committing treason. Wait a second. Wait a second now. Uh, Lee did leave after the shots at Fort Sumter. Okay, but had anything happened in Virginia at that point? Was there any actual warfare going on? So even if you just say he joined the Confederacy, was there an actual declaration of war? What? Of course there wasn't. So who is the enemy here? I mean, you would think that treason would then involve an actual declaration of war, a declared enemy. There's no enemy yet. Lincoln says these people are in rebellion. Well, is Virginia in rebellion at this point? Has Virginia fired any shots at the United States Army? Has any of that happened? We know some action took place at Fort Sumter. Lee makes his decision pretty quickly thereafter. But, I mean, where is the where is Lee actually physically fighting the United States Army at that point? He's openly saying it. I'm resigning. I'm joining up with them. There's no treason there. He didn't pull a Benedict Arnold. He wasn't feeding information to the enemy. So this is the thing that I find to be so stupid about Gelzo. But Bordowicz loves it. Bordowicz loves this book. I think he drools all over the book. Slobbers on it. And I want to read this review, and I'll stop and say a couple of things. First of all, people that say Douglas Southall Freeman is too biased to read about Robert E. Lee would then pick up this book and say, well, this is a conservative writing about Lee. But, of course, Gelzo openly says, I'm a Yankee, and I think Lee's a traitor. So this book is not objective. None of it is. The title of this is Robert E. Lee Review, A Marble Man But No Pedestal. So... He's a marble man, but he doesn't deserve to be on a pedestal. He's not a great man. And this is a concerted effort by conservatives on by conservatives now. This is conservatives doing this, saying Robert E. Lee was not a great man. We shouldn't admire him. U.S. Grant, though, that's a good guy. That's a great man. U.S. Grant. The character of the each of each man couldn't be 180 degrees more. I mean, these two people don't even belong in the same conversation in terms of greatness. Not in the same conversation. Since the end of the Civil War, Robert E. Lee's dignified visage has been the most formidable emblem of the lost cause tradition, which portrayed the Confederacy's bid for independence as a noble tragedy rather than a rebellion led by self-interested slaveholders. That's a little better description of the lost cause than the Smithsonian Magazine from yesterday, which was just stupid. Lee's personal probity his skill on the battlefield, and his initial ambivalence about secession have long earned him a favorable judgment in the public imagination. Of a kind say that Jefferson Davis, the Confederacy's president, never enjoyed. Lee was easy to admire, even to celebrate, as a man who transcended the ugly realities behind the Confederate cause. The ugly realities behind the Confederate cause. Would, would, he, would Bordowicz say the same thing about the American War for Independence? The ugly realities behind the American War for Independence. Because, you see, you had slaveholders there. 
And you had two instances in New York and Virginia where the uh, where the British issued emancipation proclamations. And you had George Washington trying to reacquire slaves at the end of the war. I mean, is that the ugly reality of the American cause? Well, if you're the 1619 Project, it is. But all these... Con- no, 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 no. You can't say that. You can't say these things. One is going to lead to the other. Where are you going to fall on this, border witch? Where are you going to fall on this, Gelzo? what I pointed out when I criticized the 1776 commission. In Robert E. Lee, A Life, Alan C. Gelzo punctures the lost cause mythology with, without indulging in culture war polemics, and he examines Lee's life and moral culpability with a judicious eye. Right. Without engaging in culture war polemics. But it's all the same. So this is my point. And again, what I've said about these morons on the right, this is my point. It's the same thing. You may not use the same language, but it's the same thing. You can't beat them if you're going to join them. And this is exactly what Gelzo is doing. The author of Gettysburg, The Last Invasion, an exceptional account of the momentous Civil War battle, Mr. Gelzo acutely judges Lee's generalship, giving credit where it's due, always in brisk and highly readable prose, but also examining Lee's often ignored battlefield shortcomings. I don't think those aren't ignored. They're not often ignored. People talk about it all the time. Maybe Lee should have done this. Maybe Lee would have been better doing this. People talk about it all the time. Although descended from a line of Virginia grandees, Lee grew up in straitened circumstances. The son of Henry Lighthorse Harry Lee, a hero of the Revolutionary War whose reputation curdled into financial scandal, massive debt, and abrupt flight from his family responsibilities, and the U.S. shame at his father's failures at least partially explains Lee's almost obsessive preoccupation with dignity and fiscal probity. So, um... Lee, this is this is the Elizabeth Pryor. Lee was just middle class. I mean, he came from this great line of men, but his father was a mess, and so Lee was just a mess. He really wasn't that man. He wasn't he wasn't the grand Lees. He's a middle class Lee. It has nothing to do with rearing. It's all about he's worried about his daddy and his mommy, and that's why he's he's that's why he grew up to be the man that he was. Not that he had this this family tradition to uphold. He was a dutiful caretaker for his invalid mother and the most of the most diligent students graduated from West Point without a single demerit. Again, that's remarkable. That's remarkable. Mr. Gelzo appears behind Lee's stony facade to reveal a man of charm and courage, but also sharp-tempered, discontented at the slow pace of advancement in the pre-war army, and at times debilitating vague, at times debilitatingly vague in issuing orders. I mean, this guy's a sharp-tempered jerk. What do we... I mean, good gosh. Lee was well-known during the Civil War for his extreme aversion to Confederate politics. In this, Mr. Gelzo sees the self-protective reflex of an aristocratic Whig in a pre-war system dominated by Jacksonian Democrats. Such political aloofness served him less well when he was the leading soldier of the Confederacy. He might have exerted influence on the South's often incompetent government, but instead chose to show a caution that made him passive when passivity was fatal, as Mr. Gelzo neatly puts it. Of course, Lee is a general, 
and he's not an elected person. This is what people would do. Generals didn't get involved in politics. Not then. I mean, Zachary Taylor, uh, Winfield Scott later both ran for president. One of them won the presidency in 1848. But while there were generals, they didn't engage. They didn't do that. Washington, this is the example of Washington, who would not engage in politics while he was a general. But yet, Gelzo sees that as a flaw. Because what we really need are more Miley's running around out there. General Miley. We need more of those people. None of this, in Mr. Gelzo's view, diminishes Lee's stature as a wartime commander, but it does humanize a man who too often seems an embodiment of virtue, almost uh, a supernatural embodiment of virtue. An engineer who had spent most of his career in the U.S. Army erecting forts and other public works, Lee had never commanded men in battle before 1861. Uh, Now, West Point is built on engineering. That's the whole point of West Point. And uh, that part of the Army, the engineer side, was seen as the most important side of it. Because engineering, of course, would prepare you for success on the battlefield, it was thought because of sieges, because of uh, logistics and other things. These are things you needed as a commanding officer. He did, however, exhibit extraordinary personal bravery during the Mexican War when he served on the staff of General Winfield Scott. But his talent, once released, was undeniable. Mr. Gelzo's accounts of the battles waged under Lee's command are terse but precise. Like virtually all historians, he rates Lee much higher than other Confederate military leaders, not to mention his Uh, luckless or timid federal rivals, with the exception of Ulysses S. Grant. Mr. Gelzo credits Lee with superior strategic vision, since he recognized that the South's only hope of victory lay in bleeding the North to the point that the Northern public would command and demand an end to the war. Mr. Gelzo is less impressed by Lee's tactical skills, grasp of logistics, and tendency to shift blame away from himself despite his protestations to the contrary. So Gelzo apparently is being pretty even-handed here, though, um, again, Gelzo's a historian who himself has never, from what I understand, uh, led men in combat either. So there you go. For more than 150 years, Lee was glowingly memorialized in the names of southern streets and schools and with monuments that manifested his flattering uh, nickname the Marble Man. Mr. Gelzo observes that Douglas Southall Freeman, the author of what was long the benchmark biography, and still is, by the way, R.E. Lee, pedestaled Lee as simultaneously the champion of the lost cause and the noblest American. The days of such blind devotion seem to be ending. The removal of Lee's statue from Monument Avenue in Richmond, Virginia, the Confederacy's capital, is but the most dramatic evidence of Lee's plummeting reputation. But why is that? Why is that? Why is Lee's reputation plummeting? Because of people like Gelzo. That's why it's plummeting. Because of Alan Gelzo and people like Alan Gelzo on the right and, of course, on the left, too. That's why it's plummeting. Lee always possessed a significant, if, I'm sorry, posed a significant, if often scanted problem for historians. Personal virtues aside, he was, by any traditional measure, a traitor to his country. No. He wasn't. Not any traditional measure. Not the American tradition. He wasn't a traitor. He followed in the line of what that means. Independence. Adherence to your state over a central authority that's oppressive and unconstitutional. Tyrannical even. That's the American tradition. That's not treason. 
a man who violated the oath of, he took as an officer of the U.S. Army and who employed his considerable talent to wage war for the cause that Grant called one of the worst for which a people ever fought. Yeah, because Grant's 100% right about this. See, this is the, the fallacy of appeal to authority. Who cares what Grant said about it? I don't. After the war, he managed to invade prosecution thanks largely to President Andrew Johnson's disinclination to punish former Confederates. So what? Johnson didn't think it was right. The Supreme Court didn't even think it was right to, to, uh, to put Jefferson Davis on trial for treason because they didn't think they could get a conviction. And uh, uh, Nicoletti's book on this, on secession, where she talks about the case against Davis, you can see in that book she pleads for people not to hold it against her, but she actually, I think, agrees with the defense more than the prosecution in that case. While noting that Lee's conduct unarguably meets the constitutional definition of treason, Mr. Gelder suggests that the reluctance to prosecute him reflected not only the politics of the moment, but also a deeper national tradition of mercy, a habit of absorbing society's defaulters rather than marching them to the scaffold. Hmm. This is the, we're magnanimous. Us Northerners, we're magnanimous. We didn't, we didn't kill you after the war was over, Southerners, so you should love us. Oh, well, I mean, we did have that thing called Reconstruction when people did get killed, black and white, in fact, lots of them, and we did have that war thing. But, you know, we're magnanimous. Um, we have a lot of mercy here. But, of course, it doesn't meet the, the constitutional definition of treason because he wasn't a U.S. citizen when he was waging war against the United States. That's like saying that, George Washington was a British subject when waging war against the British. Nobody in America would say that. We'd say, no, he's an American at that point. Why? Because they declared their independence. They were independent. Well, the South seceded. They said, we don't need a declaration. Why? Because we've already done that. We already are free independent states, so we don't need to have another declaration. That would say that we're not free and independent states. We can do this all we want to. So there you go. For a long time, Lee escaped history's verdict on his entanglement with race and slavery. His willingness to defend slavery's cause on the battlefield was excused by his professed discomfort with the South's peculiar institution. Was he really defending slavery's cause? I mean, he was fighting against slavery. That's what a lot of Southerners would say. They're fighting against their own enslavement. It's not really fighting for slavery's cause. Though he failed to em emancipate his own slaves until they had literally walked away on their own. No, that's not the way it worked. He did emancipate his own slaves <laughs> during the war, by the way. Uh, at his own expense, when he had to, the five year up with the five years up on the limits that were designed in the will that he had to execute. This is where Borderwich doesn't even know what he's talking about. During the war, Lee never ordered a massacre of black federal troops, but he didn't punish such atrocities when they were perpetrated by other Confederate commanders. Nor did he prevent the rounding up of hundreds of blacks in Pennsylvania during the Gettysburg campaign and selling them into slavery, writes Mr. Gelzo. Indifference to slavery is not quite the same thing as its active embrace and promotion, but not by much. So would that mean that Lincoln, who's indifferent to it, is just as guilty as Robert E. Lee? Or how about all the Northerners that were indifferent to it? Are they just as guilty as Robert E. Lee? I would, I would ask Gelzo that question. After the war, there were Southern whites who supported the freed people's cause, but Lee was not among them. 
Although he advised Southerners to acquiesce into federal authority, he refused to cooperate with Reconstruction, well, because it was illegal, spent much less support the new rights of the freed people in contrast to his former Corps commander, James Longstreet, who became an open champion of the Grant administration. Why did, why did Longstreet do that? Because there was, for him, there was uh, money and power in it. I can be on the losing side, or I can be on the winning side. Now, Reconstruction, for most Southerners, they deemed it illegal. Illegal, so... With appropriately faint praise, Mr. Gelso allows that in the bloody aftermath of the war, Lee's garments were cleaner than those of many of his contemporaries. But comparative harmlessness is not much of a historically significant quality. He also notes the abolitionist Wendell Phillips, who reflected that whatever the requirements of ultimate justice, the victors in a war could not cover the continent with gibbets. Now, uh, so Gelso, oh, I mean, he's... Yeah, he's not he's not like the pro-slavery ideologues, but he's he's still as bad as they are. Because he didn't he didn't resist this as much. Perhaps mercy, even at the expense of justice, can be defended as a political virtue in a broken country that somehow had to heal. But we should remember that the healing, such as it was, took place at the expense of four million black Americans who were denied the rights promised to them by the post war amendments to the Constitution. While Lee spent his last years in comfort as the president of Virginia College, his former soldiers, wearing the robes and masks of the Ku Klux Klan, were slaughtering freed people across the South, and he did nothing to stop them. Again, you're getting into hyperbole here on some of this, but uh, regardless, there's many publications, I mean, just a recent one on the Klan, uh, that is, would disagree with what uh, Borderwitch actually says there. But anyways... Lee didn't do enough. Lee didn't do enough to stop it. Lee didn't do this. Lee didn't do that, right? So this book, and I'll get it and read it eventually. I'll get around to it uh, because I don't like to read things that uh, I know. I mean, look, I know what it's going to say. There's not much you can tell me about Lee that I haven't read somewhere else about Lee. Um, but regardless, uh, this particular book is part of the problem. Gelzo is a conservative. And so when the conservatives start to start to crush traditional American heroes, which Lee is that, he's been an American hero since right after the war. When conservatives start to do it, well, you just have you're joining the left. Well, no, no, no. I'm not joining the left. No, I'm not doing that. You're joining the left in the culture war. You are. You've just joined them. Because if Lee comes down, they're going to take down everything else. Gelzo can't see it. These people can't see it. But well, it has to stop here. It has to stop here. The, a lot of these. This is and tomorrow. I'm going to talk about again the Straussians, the Claremont people, because this is where they can't figure things out. They're too blind or stupid. I don't know which one it is to figure out what they're doing is a disaster. You can't play the left's game on their field on their terms with their with their rules and expect to win. It cannot happen. And if your entire position is based on a lie, then you're going to lose over and over again because the other side is going to punch holes in it nonstop. All right. People wanted my opinion on this particular piece. Well, you got it. Uh, I think it's bad. I think Border Witch is a bad historian. I think that Border Witch is just typical mainstream junk. I think that this book on Gelzo by Gelzo, I already know what Gelzo is going to write before he does it because I've seen enough of Gelzo in lectures and other things he's written to know that he might show some even-handedness with Lee at times, but I think the first line of the book is Robert E. Lee was a traitor. 
I mean, if you're operating from that position, you can't write an objective history of Robert E. Lee. You can't do it. You can't do it. And that's his position. It's been his position. He, he even identifies. I'm a Yankee who's writing from the position that Lee's a traitor. Well, that would be like some northern officer in the, uh, at the end of the war writing about Robert E. Lee. We're going to take that with a grain of salt because, well, I mean, this guy's clearly... Now, if he says Lee wasn't a traitor, that's a more interesting position. But to come out and say, well, Lee was a traitor, et cetera, well, you know what they're going to say then. Anyways, you got to know who writes it. Hope you enjoyed this episode of the Brian McClanahan Show. I'll see you next time on the next one. See you then. 